Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A word of warning. This podcast contains discussions that some listeners may find distressing or triggering. Please use your discretion. Before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that I've decided to take a couple of weeks off, but I'm not leaving you empty-handed. I've gone and spoken to some of our previous guests and I'm reposting some of our more earlier episodes. So this week I'm reposting an episode that I did with the incredible Ryan Gadsby, who is the founder of The Edge of the Bed. He is an incredible survivor and advocate, and he's doing so much work in this space, especially highlighting and giving a voice to male survivors. So a trigger warning before we get into this one again, on top of the one we already do, because this podcast does talk about child sexual abuse. So if that's not something that you think that you can listen to, that is okay. Um, but Ryan does tell this story in an incredible way, and he's just such a wonderful person. So if you haven't already listened to it, please go give it a listen. If you want to listen further and get in contact with Ryan, please go and follow him on social media at the edge of the bed. He is such a wonderful, wonderful advocate, and I could not overstate how much you should go and follow him. So thank you, and on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to Reclaim Me. My name is Madeline Heather, and today I am joined by a lovely young man, Ryan. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, you're coming to me all of the way from the UK. Whereabouts are you? Uh, I live in a small town called Doncaster. It's like an ex-mining village in Yorkshire. So right up north. Kind of, yeah, kind of up north, yeah, yeah. I love it. I love your accent. <laughs> I was listening to some um, uh, in another podcast the other day and it was on the um, on Peter Sutcliffe and it was just so interesting listening to all of the local people that they interviewed between all of the that kind of region and all of their accents they're so different between each little town yeah it's crazy uh, my nan always speaks about how um she remembers like with the whole peter sutcliffe thing and women were so scared to go out and everything she like she remembers all that um like we're around that area so it's uh crazy that's absolutely like heartbreaking as well because um, yeah. at that time the police did what they did recently with Sarah Everard, where they said to women locally, don't go out at night, basically. Yeah, it's so sad. It's like 
it's always been like focused around changing women's behavior rather than uh, hitting the actual issue. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we're joined today together to talk about something um, awful that, that you've had to go through and you've had to endure in, in your life. Do you mind telling um, us a little bit about the background and, and where this all started for you? Yeah, so um, I was sexually abused from the age of 8 to 13 and then I was physically abused from 13 to 16 um, to keep me quiet. And so my first memory of the abuse happening was um, in the shower sea. I had this like fear of water when I was around, like from about ages 4 to like 10 or something like that. So I had this fear of water. And um, the only person who could actually like shower me or bath me at the time when I was younger was my auntie Jackie. <laughs> she wasn't actually my auntie. We had, I don't know if you have this in Australia, but we have this thing in Yorkshire. And like, if your mum's got a really close friend, you call them auntie. <laughs> yeah, I think pretty much my mum's got a lot of really close friends as well. And I'd, I call them, yeah, basically family, pretty similar. Yeah. yeah so it were always auntie Jackie and she was like, my second mum, basically, she was um, amazing. And yeah, she was the only one that could shower me. And what she used to tell me to do was, she used to tell me to look up towards the ceiling and speak to this like guy called Jack. It was like an imaginary friend. And um, she said, oh, you can tell him all your worries. And that was the only thing that had calmed me down. So then when the sexual abuse started, um, and this happened where my mum met this this guy from uh, the local church, he started going to church like quite recently. And I remember this guy from like really young. I still have memories like um, the, of the first time I met him. And I remember when I'd be walking around the church, I'd see him like staring at me and watching me. And I just thought as a kid, oh, he must be nice. And he, I, he was always smiling and stuff. And then a few sort of weeks later, uh, basically after the service, they had this little hatch and they'd serve drinks and snacks for the kids. And I went over to this hatch and the man says to me, oh, I'll give you some extra biscuits. And I got extra biscuits over the other kids. And then okay, he- so it started before he was like with your mother. Yeah, the group, like the sort of um, like trying to make contact with me and, and yeah, kind of like grooming, I guess, started before he even spoke to my mom. Yeah. Um, and then obviously, as they do, he um, found who my mom was and then asked her on a date. But weirdly asked if me and my sister could come with. So the only person that lived with me was my mum, uh, my sister and me. So, um, so yeah, we all went on this date to KFC, so classy guy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we, we went on, on this date and um, and then things built from there and we visited his house. And growing up, like, I never grew up with a lot of money. We were, like, on this kind of, like, council estate thing. And um, my mum didn't have a lot of money. We were evicted when my dad walked out. Um, so when we saw his house and stuff, we was like, wow, this is great. And he had the, I remember he had this like um, race car thing in his summer house and loads of stuff left from uh, his stepson. So I was like amazed with all this stuff. And it was very focused around little boy stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like stuff that would intrigue me. So an Xbox and, and things like that. So it's like he was looking for a target in a way. and uh, Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's what a lot of those preferential offenders do when they're, you know, they're honed in on a certain age of a, of a child. 
Um, and then that's why a lot of, you know, people who are pedophiles work in um, places like churches because they have access to children. But I think from, you know, what you're saying, it's like maybe he started that relationship or, you know, engaged in potentially a relationship with your mother with you as the focus. Yeah, yeah, I believe that's that's um, that's the case. Um, when they started dating and stuff, we all obviously uh, got closer with him and um, people would say about me and him that we was, like, so close and, um, you know, people saw it in public how, how attached I became to him and stuff. And then we started staying at his house and and the first time we stayed at his house, it came to, like, bath time. Um so time for me to get a wash before school the next day. And um, I remember like kicking off and crying and stuff and like I always did pretty much. And um, and then he offered to help me, like in the shower, offered to my mum to help me. And um, and so like that's what calmed me down. I thought, oh, my new best friend's going to help me in this. You know, it was one of the only thing I was scared of. So it was this huge thing for me. And it was like, all oh, right, this like yeah like i said the new my, my new best friend's going to help me with this so um i i remember it a little bit he like held my hand helped me uh, help me up the stairs and stuff and then um the abuse didn't happen the first time but i, re- I particularly remember him staring at me um like you know when i don't know if you can remember but when you know your parents or whatever had helped you in the bath when you was really young and stuff <laughs> they wouldn't like stare at you it'd be very like lucky away and yeah you know i mean they wouldn't purposely stare at at your body yeah definitely it would just be like more of a playful thing almost and then yeah, it'd be like yeah. teaching you how to wash your hair and things like that but yeah not looking at your body yeah and i just particularly remember how weird it was and then he was like oh has your mum ever shown you how to wash your willy and that's that's the term that i used um and i was like no <laughs> and I was like confused and then um he basically showed me and that was the first time and then um we stayed the second time and then this is when the sexual abuse began fully and um and yeah and it was the same thing in the shower um and he molested me the first time and then it sort of built from there and did he like start this and then was he like, don't tell anybody about it? Or was it kind of just known that this was like something between you that, that was almost special or something that he built it up to be like that? Yeah. So it was like, this is what dads do. That was his attitude. And I remember him saying a lot like, oh, this is what dads are supposed to do. You haven't had your dad around a lot. So I'm going to show you and I'm going to be your dad basically. And as I, when I was younger, I always wanted a dad like my friends, like, I saw like my friends playing football with uh, their dads and playing on the Xbox and stuff. And I remember always wanting that kind of relationship. And, and so like, you know, we drew me in with that and I just thought, you know, this must be all right as an adult. And I hadn't been, you know, taught anything like specifically, you know, body safety and stuff. So. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you have been, groomed and then you're also kind of grateful to be in this wonderful house it's so different look at all of these wonderful things um and you don't know any different as well you're not you've probably not been taught any of 
you know, we at that age, I remember we were always taught stranger danger and this isn't a stranger and he works in a church and it must have just been, it's all, you know, smoke and mirrors kind of thing for what was actually going on. Yeah, it was exactly that. Like, um, and this, this, you know, that kind of thing continued throughout, like it took us on nice holidays and, and so it was that kind of like, you have a weird feeling about it. Like, you know, it's uncomfortable and that it's not quite right, but you kind of just, you know, trust the adult, (laughs) you know, when it's. Especially when you're that young as well, you know, and it's just such a different situation and it's made for you to feel more special because you're the boy Um, and he's the dad kind of thing. It's like this father-son relationship as opposed to your mum or your sister. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that was it. And, and, you know, when the like abuse advanced and stuff, it would happen all over the house and like after school in my bedroom and my my sister was literally in the bedroom next to us and in the garage and in his office and like, it just grew so fast. It was like my little brain couldn't comprehend it. And then before I knew it, it was at a point where like I'm kind of knew it was wrong and but I was so deep in it it was like how do I get out of this yeah that's I'm so sorry that you went through that it is so unfathomable that somebody would hurt a child or hurt anybody in that regard but to hurt a child and consistently one that's in your care um is just so unfathomable I think for most people to do that was it was he at this stage as well like was he doing this every day basically so um, we stayed like quite frequently um, and then their their relationship grew, my mum and his, and and we ended up moving in. So um, and only for a few weeks we were moved in and then they got married. And during this time of moving in and stuff, it became every day, like, because, you know, you have a bath every night before school and and it became his job to do it. So you know, it, it became every day and, and things were added, um, like it made me touch him and, and, um, you know, and do the, do it to each other. And, and, you know, it, that's as far as it went, but, um, but yeah, he'd always try and advance it. And, you know, at points it was scary. And once they got married, we were going on holidays and stuff. And I have this particular memory of being on holiday and, um, we'd been on the, flight there so I was really tired and I think I was only like 10 and I'm like exhausted and I flat out lay on the bed and he's trying to molest me and stuff and and I remember just thinking in my head I just want to go to sleep and I was crying like with my back turned to him and I was just weeping and like and then he was trying to um, put it inside me so like I squirmed and and I kind of screamed and um and that was the first hint of like his aggression towards me. Like, um, like I'd ne- I, he'd never shouted at me like properly. And like, I remember him shouting right in my face and the spit going on my face and everything. And uh, his hand like on my chest and stopping me from breathing. And, um, and ever from that, ever since from that point, I was scared to go to sleep anywhere. Like I'd be up all night in my own room at home, just scared that he's going to come in and try that. My God, it's just terrifying that, you know, aggression and stuff must be this the real person as well. Like he's wearing a mask all of the time to 
to make this this loving kind of experience. And then as he tries to advance and as he tries to like maintain control over you or loses control because you're not complying with him, his real true aggressive self kind of comes out in an effort to control you. Yeah, and that's it. And that was pretty much the only time around the time the sexual abuse was happening that it was fully aggressive. It was only after when it became like more clear what this like how aggressive this guy was. Um, and when I started to understand what had happened, it was like, um, you know, you get them feelings of like, I don't know how to describe it. Like someone's just taken, taken advantage of you, which they have. And kind of like that kind of demasculized because, you know, society tells you that you have to be this strong guy. And, you know, one of the worst things that can happened to a man one of the most demoralizing things that can happen has happened to me and so you know I felt like in my young teenage brain like I could never be a proper man whatever that, yeah, I think you know whatever society says that is yeah I've spoken to a few male victims as well who have said something really similar and I think in the age that we grew up to it was bad to be gay and to be molested or sexually assaulted by another man was also that added level um, for a lot of people. And it's just, you know, the stigma associated with with all of it is just so hard to go through. And then you start going through, you know, puberty and you start to develop your own feelings towards different things and learn about um, sex and touching and things like that. Do you remember a time where you learned that, okay, this isn't right? Were you like in a class or something or was it something that your knowledge just developed where you were like, okay, I have an inkling now and then you you kind of developed your understanding a little bit further and further that this what he was doing was wrong? Yeah, so I have a few like little sparks I can remember where it was like little moments where I sort of ended up, you know, understanding what had happened but uh, one of the main things is that in the UK in schools and stuff, especially like high schools, they joke about paedophiles and nonces or whatever every single day. Like there's always a nonce joke going around. Um, and I was like, what does that even mean? So uh, I remember looking into it and stuff and and then I was like, hang on a minute. That is That ex- explains exactly what happened to me. So this was like after it faded out because the sexual abuse faded out when I was 13. I say faded out. It like didn't just stop. It like went on for a little bit, but happened less frequently. And it was when I started hitting puberty and he'd get angry with me that, you know, my body was looking older and, um, you know, like I have memories of that. And, and so when I began to realize that what pedophilia is, then I ended up watching this documentary. I can't remember the name, but, it was this little girl and they was talking about her experiences and stuff. And then I was like, that sounds exactly like me. And then, yeah, that's when I realized. That's really interesting that like, yeah, it's come out of a joke. Even for you now, like hearing people make jokes about pedophiles, does that annoy you or are you in, because like I know people make rape jokes all the time and I find them abhorrent. I don't think that they're funny at all. As that being like your, um, introduction into understanding this is how is it when you do hear jokes like that now i think it depends on the type of joke like if you're taking the mess out of a pedophile uh, who's you know been convicted and stuff 
um then i think yeah joke about them like fuck them you know what i mean but um and it's focused around like survivors and stuff like if you're making jokes you know aimed at survivors of abuse then yeah i feel like that's completely wrong like and hateful i have heard little things um i can't remember what but where people sort of um speak about male survivors being gay like and stuff so and that's exactly what my abuser told me i have a memory of him saying um things like what do you want your friends to think you're gay when they find out about what i've done and so when i hear jokes like that then yeah that does have an impact it takes me right back to being in that kind of situation oh my word and i think that's just so one of those grooming tactics to make sure that you stay quiet you know you've got the one level where it was kind of love almost you know this is this father figure thing and then you've got the the threats and stuff so you must have been so confused in your mind for so long about what was actually going on yeah it was only when I got to sort of 15 where my head was like oh my god like this has happened and this is my dad this is my dad that's done this and you know that's what he became over the years like a proper dad and and I'm not like trying to make out as if I was like locked in some basement being sexually abused and stuff. Cause it wasn't like that. Like I said, we was going on holidays. Uh, you know, I had a decent life and other than what was happening. And, and so it was very confusing. Cause I was like, when I'd see the adverts from the NSPCC and stuff, it would always be this little girl and she'd be like dirty laid on this floor and you know, that kind of picture. And so it made me feel very like is what, is happening to me or happening to me that bad that's what it made me question and I and I lived like that for a long time and it did take me down like quite a dark path and I remember being 14 15 and feeling like very suicidal and on my way to school there'd be this like really busy road and I'd count down the seconds that I was going to jump in front of cars and luckily I never did it but it was on my mind every day just ending my life that's really horrible to hear especially because you're at such a vulnerable age at that time as well, you've got so much going on in development. Um, your, you know, sleep's always going to be interrupted with growing up and, you know, with everything as well. And I've spoken to a few survivors of child sexual abuse, especially ones that have gone on. And they've said that same thing. Like you've got these really contrasting feelings towards this person, you know, this love and adoration on one side because they look after you, they put a roof over your head, they can be loving at times, but then they're doing this to you and it's so hard to reconcile that feeling. Yeah, that's so true. That's like one of the hardest things about it and survivor's guilt and to skip forward to when I told the police, like I remember being in my workplace toilet just bawling my eyes out because I was about to go and tell the police about what he'd been doing to me and I remember thinking about all the like good memories and and stuff but when you come around to understand that this person has purposely done this to manipulate you and get what they want out of you uh, you know you've got to go you know along that healing um to understand that so yeah so the abuse kind of you know slowly stopped over time um, and then you said he became quite physically abusive. Was that kind of like a transition from the sexual abuse to the more physical abuse? Yeah, so when it began to fade out and stuff, he was getting more like physical, like with the sexual abuse and stuff, like getting angry at me and it make me shave and stuff. So I looked younger and and um and then 
like I said, when I was around 14, 15 and I was quite suicidal, I remember confronting him and I said to him, I know what, what you was doing when I was younger was wrong. And, um, and then this was the first time that he physically like, um, assaulted me. And I, I can't remember it like fully in detail cause it was like really quick, but I remember him grabbing my throat and then I was up against the um, wall near the bottom of the stairs. And then I remember seeing these little flashes and I, I thought like, oh, is this my life flashing before my eyes? It was really odd. I don't know what it was, but like there was flashing in little dots of light in my eyes and little colors and stuff. And like I blacked out for a few seconds. And when I came round, I was like slumped on the floor and my stomach was hurting. And so I think he kicked me or punched me. Um, and um, he was like telling me if I tell anyone that he'll kill my mom, um, that shit's going to get a lot more serious from now. And I'm not going to get it easy. And um, he'd always tell me that his dad abused him when he was younger and that um, I got it lucky. And he, he told me that you're not going to be lucky anymore. Um, and yeah, and then from there it was pretty much interrogated every day. And and then this progressed to like emotional and psychological. I remember being laid in bed one night and there were like a computer at the end of my bed. And I'm like laid in bed and the webcam light comes on. And I'm like, what the hell? Because I know that, you know, someone has to be on the camera. And so I like crawled under where I thought the camera could see. And I get to the desk and um, I click on the screen so my computer would come on. And um, the screen comes on and it's my camera and I'm like facing myself in this on this screen and it's me just stood there. And then it quickly all goes off. It was like something out of a horror film, you know, when it goes like, dun. Yeah. <laughs> like in real life, like I felt this jump of like anxiety, but it didn't like click to me straight away or it could be him. It was like, I'm being hacked or something. <laughs> Um, yeah, but it happened so often after that. Like I kept seeing it, kept seeing it, and I thought, okay, maybe, maybe it is him because he always knew. Like you know, as teenagers, you sneak on your phone and stuff when you're meant to be asleep, and he always knew that I was doing that. So I was like, how does he know that I'm on my phone? Um, and so one day it came on, and it was actually in the afternoon, which was really rare. And I was just laid on my bed uh, after school. And then I see it come on. So I quickly run downstairs and he sat there on this little chair. Luckily, the chair is literally around the corner from the bottom of the stairs. And he's like trying to mess with it. And I can see my computer screen on his phone screen. Um, and so that's when I knew that it was him that was watching me. And I also discovered another camera in my room in the top corner, which was connected to this little box that recorded all the CCTV. So we had this constant loop of recording of my bedroom. Oh, my gosh. That is just like terrifying what was it like when you figured that out was it were you did you confront him in any way or was it just one of those an additional tactic that he was using to manipulate and basically torture you yeah I didn't dare confront him about it because at this point he was like very I thought I was gonna die like I thought he was gonna kill me one day so I um like from then on I had to try and like get changed behind towels and stuff because I was kind of like I need to kind of show him that I know, but not say it. So he can't like, cause he might think, Oh, he knows, but he might not know. Um, so it was that kind of like elephant in the room where I knew about the cameras and he thought I knew, but didn't quite know if I knew. And if he just said it, then he'd know I knew. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it was, I, I didn't dare confront him about, 
confront him about it, but I had like methods to try and get change without him watching me. And I didn't know where all that footage and stuff would go or where it was going. So I was quite concerned about that. Um, yeah. Have you ever found out if that was ever like used or sold um, online or anything, or is that n- nothing that you've been able to um, figure that out? So like, this is like really frustrating part of this story. It's like, so when he got arrested and stuff, obviously I'll go into like how that happened, but when he got arrested and stuff, his friend for some stupid reason went and took him all his computer shit. So we never got to give that to the police. And before, you know, the police were looking at all that he didn't have any computers. So there were no, like, I don't think there was anything found. They did say they found something on his work laptop, but they wouldn't tell me. And obviously I'll go into later why the court case didn't go through and stuff, but yeah. That's really frustrating. So I saw on your video as well, cause I've watched that, um, because you're you're doing so, such a wonderful thing by by sharing your story and speaking so openly about it, um, that you did confront him eventually and and go to the police when you were on your way to work. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's um, that's true. So this all built up like my depression and stuff. I felt very trapped. He was tracking my phone, like I say, with the cameras and everything. And you know, I was still living with the shame of everything that happened when I was younger. So I was just really, really depressed and. Every day I felt about and like I thought about ending my own life and and then it came to the point where I was like, okay, I'm gonna set a day. So I set this day. It was November second or third, um, and this was, I set it like a few days before, and so I had time to like write letters, and so I wrote all these letters, and on the day that I was gonna do it, I was gonna um, go in the shower, and I had a shift at. Um, I think it was like three o'clock at McDonald's where I used to work. And um, so I was going to get in the shower like normal, but instead I was going to um, use these little two blades that I'd taped together and cut my wrist as deep as I could and then sit in the shower and, and kind of bleed out. Um, and so I put the suicide letters on this like little shelf near my desk, went into the bathroom. I was literally had the blade already into the side of my wrist and then I get a phone call and uh, I pick up the phone and it's my girlfriend Sophie and uh, she says I know something's wrong and in the few days before I'd been like doing these like little hints of like kind of like a help me kind of thing but not direct yeah. um, I said to her oh what because we watched this documentary about child abuse I was like oh what would you say to me if I got abused and like weird stuff like that and you know, I was kind of like hinting at it. And and so she'd, she'd heard this for the last couple of days and then she was like, I know something's wrong. And, you know, in that point, it's weird because when you're in that point of you're ready to end your life, it's such a bubble. Like your brain doesn't, it doesn't go to logical options. It's just, and it feels like it's so odd. And I don't know, like, if anyone out there can relate to this, but it felt like I'd gone in too deep. And if I wasn't going to do it, then I was like breaking some pact and letting, I don't know, like it, it was a weird feeling, but everything yeah. just came out and, um, and I just told her everything. And then we made a little plan that I'd go to work like normal. And my abuser actually had to take me to work because he had to make sure that's where I was going. And, um, and yeah, so we made this plan that I'd go to work like normal, but instead hiding the toilets 
And then Sophie and her mum had come and pick me up and take me to the police station. And so I did that. I got in the shower. Um, but when I got out of the shower and I came into the room, the suicide letters were gone. So I thought, shit, what am I going to do? But luckily, like I didn't say anything. He didn't say anything. And so um, I bagged my toothbrush, bagged my clothes and stuff, and, um, and then went to work. And on the drive there, he was like, oh, you've been acting depressed this morning. Your mum's going to start getting suspicious and asking questions. And it was always like this, like constantly drilling my head. Like, And so I ended up just breaking. We got there and, you know, we was in public. And and so I opened, like I had my hand, my hand on the handle and I said, I don't want to keep your secret anymore. And I quickly like jumped out and he went to grab my sleeve and, um, and I think he said something like, stop, stop it with this attitude, right? And something like that, um, which is something that he said all the time, which kind of meant like, shut up and listen to me. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. And, and that was the last time, last thing I said to him and, and yeah. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. And then did you go into work? Like did your plan kind of come through or how, how yeah, did yeah. it go from there? So like I felt this, like I said earlier, I felt this like deep guilt. And so I like went into the toilets and I was just crying, like bawling my eyes out. And 
I remember like whispering sorry, like kind of to him in my head. And I don't know why, but it's just kind of the mindset I was in. And and then Sophie and him were outside. So I went outside and then we drove to the police station. And you know what was crazy? We walked into the police station, this like dopey police officer uh, opened door. And I was like, it was like, oh, what are you reporting? And then Sophie's mum tried to answer for me because I was like crying. She didn't know like, how to say it. It was like a really awkward situation. And so I said, oh, sexual abuse. And then he went off and then he came back and he was like, I don't know if you're going to be able to see someone today. I was like, oh what my are you gosh. talking about? Like, what am I meant to do then? Like, I can't go home. Like, if I go home, you're going to be dealing with probably a murder case. Like, he will kill me if I know, if he knows that I've been here. And, um, yeah, it was so scary. That's then- so wonderful that you had those two people there as well, though. Like, that she was of sound mind enough, your girlfriend, Sophie, to kind of go – oh my gosh, I'm telling my mum. And that yeah. there's an adult in the room that is like, okay, we're going to do this. I'm going to support you and and come up with a plan to safely get you there. Um, good on her like as well. That's such an incredible thing. Yeah. So was, can you not walk sorry. into the police station? Sorry. It was kind of hard to get into. We had this like fence and we had to press this button. It was so hard to do. And then when we got in, it was like um, – yeah, it's just this one dude and he didn't really know what he was doing. Uh, but luckily he brought his two staff members down and, and they were they were really trained and knew exactly what to do. And they sent me off to this like centre where I did this video interview and and yeah, it was it was crazy because I was sat in this interview with this guy who's called Adam and halfway through he said, Right, they're going to arrest him now and it was like this crazy like liberating feeling of like, oh my God, it's over. Like it's over. But I also had this thing in the back of my mind, like I felt, I always felt like my mum and my sister would like kind of believe him and be on his side because that's what I'd always been told and like what had been drilled into my head. So it was like, um, yeah, it was a, it was a mix of emotions, but it was a crazy like freedom of like lifting feeling. Um, and yeah, great, great feeling. That's so good. And, you know, it goes back to that kind of feeling as well of like the kind of guilt, but you, but like excitement at the same time, like yeah. that it's just, I can't even fathom what that would feel like to be so juxtaposed in your feelings um, in that moment. But, and the adrenaline of being there, um, that's just such, it's so incredible to think about. So do you, how old were you then? Was this at 16? Yeah, this was 16 years old. I was, like, amazed with how Sophie dealt with it. Like you said, it was, like, she was 16 and she was hearing this. And she'd been brought up in, like, this kind of conservative family, don't talk about sex and don't, you know, speak about anything like that. And so I was, like, so shocked with how well she dealt with it. And at 16, yeah, crazy. And that's just incredible as well because you've been told for so long that, you know, you're nobody's going to believe you. Um, they're going to think that you're gay, and you've you've got this feeling in in your head as you go through that. To have her respond that way is so must have been so liberating for you. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was. It was a it was a weird day, and like I was very dissociated and and everything. But I just remember that feeling of like, okay, this is my new chapter of my life with these people, and. And yeah, and, and that's what happened. I stayed the night at Sophie's mum's on the sofa and all night I was staying awake, like thinking that he was going to pull up. 
And um, but what's really frustrating is, um, like I said, his friends went and got his computer. And then after hearing what he, this was like a family friend as well. After hearing what he had um, done to me and what he'd been accused of, is how Andrew would have said it. Um, that's my stepdad. Sorry, I don't think I said his name. Um, and so they went up and met him, took his all his computer stuff, and had a drink with him. After hearing like what had happened, his friends did. Yeah, well, family friends. So basically, family friends. My it was, gosh. Yeah, it was, and like that was that was the first time I felt like okay, so they don't believe me, um, and yeah, that that like really hit me hard because their son. So this were two people, um, and their son saw me on the bus because I went I went straight to college the day after. I just went straight back into everything, and I saw him on the bus the day after, and he was like oh, I felt, I felt sorry for him. You were crying and everything. I'm like, why the fuck are you telling me that? Like, I don't need to hear that. I don't care. Like, and obviously that guilt was still playing in my mind. So that just built it all up. And and then I went into sort of this like deep kind of depression and I didn't leave the house for months. And I felt so ashamed and like people didn't believe me and that everyone in the world knew about it. And in the time the abuse was happening, like I didn't want anyone to know about it. That's why suicide felt like the only option. Like the worst thing in the world for me was for people to find out. Yeah. And so like now people knew and people it felt like everyone were on his side, even though they weren't. Um, yeah, it was like just draw me into this like kind of depression. And um, I ended up like starving myself and going to A&E and everything over the next couple of months. And and yeah, it was a really dark time after that. But that's re- I really relate to that feeling as well, though, because when when my abuse came out, um, I just remember feeling like everybody was staring at me at school. And while a lot of people knew and you know everything, when I came out recently and, and told my story and posted episode one of Reclaim Me, um, a lot of people that went to school with me actually reached out and said that they didn't know, which was quite shocking to me because you you have this almost built-in paranoia and shame. And I felt so much guilt for the man who perpetrated it against me because I felt sorry for the fact that he was in jail and he wasn't going to be there for his daughter. Yeah. But then also I had the same thing with people being like, you know, um, his partner actually attacked him that night and he, he got cuts on his face and, um, you know, I think that he didn't mean to do it or get, making excuses and shit. And that made my blood boil, that people would say things like that to me. And it's so wrong for somebody to come up to you. You're a kid. He's been doing this for so long. And to hear that and go have a drink with him and then to have the gall to say to you, he was crying, I feel sorry for him. Oh, my God. It's no, just... Yeah. It was so frustrating and it's like the whole computer situation as well. Like that could have been a crucial part of the case. Like that could have had so much evidence on. And, you know, it just makes me feel suspicious towards them, to be honest. Like that's just something I'm working through now, like trying to figure out what that deal was all about. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, why would you cover up pedophilia what would what would give you the indication that you would ever want to do that from anybody you know unless you are one um yeah Yeah. so when you'd gone in and you had made your statement and everything what was it like when your 
mum found out about what what the allegations were that you were making? Yeah, so the um, police went to arrest him, like I said, and my mum was in. Um, my sister was at work, and so it was just him and my mum. And when they came in, um, there was like, oh, well, when the police knocked on the door, he went and answered, and they came in, and they was all in the living room, and it's like, oh, someone's made an allegation of sexual abuse against you. And I didn't mention this before, but this guy has actually had two other allegations made against him while mum has been with him. So it was kind of like, what, another one kind of thing? And I think, like, it was kind of like clogging, like she was kind of like clocking on to something. And yeah. uh, and so the, the I'll go into the first two allegations. So I can't say who it was against, but um, one of them, just before we met him, he just basically beaten the court case like he just got found not guilty the second one um i remember coming home from football practice while i was at high school and i walked through the door and there's a social worker stood there with police officers they sit me down and like start asking if he's abused me and i said no and like i was still in that stage of like misunderstanding what had happened and um and then what actually happened to the guy is that the case didn't go through because he ended up ending in ending his own life Oh, my gosh. So, like, and then, you know, even now, like, I think about him every day because, like, like that could have been me. And it's just so heartbreaking that he felt that no one believed him for years. Like, this happened years and years ago. Like, way before he met us, way before the other case. Like, this happened years ago. And the file got lost by the police. Oh, so my gosh. so he didn't get anything back. This was, like before things were more organized he didn't hear anything back from the police after going and telling him oh i've been sexually abused by this man and so you know he he went through his life believing that um it was never believed and that's what led him to suicide yeah or that nobody cared you know if they've not even cared to call him back with such a serious allegation and explain why they haven't done anything like that must have just been such an isolating feeling for him my abuser, Andrew, was celebrating this. Celebrating oh guy, this young guy's death. It was horrible. And obviously I'm sat there and I know exactly what that what that guy went through. And it's just such a typical thing of a pedophile um, that they have honed their craft, in inverted commas, over a number of years and they leave a wake of victims. They don't care and where there is one there is often many many more um and that's why you see i think in the media and things as well especially with with an allegation of child sexual abuse that comes forward um openly especially on the media with somebody like a priest or something like that Mm. there will always be more that will eventually come forward and they come forward because they see that they weren't the only one and that somebody's been able to you know articulate something that they went through um, so it's not shocking to hear that he had other victims, but it's just so tragic that the system failed this young man and his life was lost. I know, and, like, after after everything came out and stuff, and just recently I've been, spe- I've been trying to get hold of people from his past, and I got hold of someone that he knew, like, years and years ago, and, like, there was three other people that he abused. And he told. He also told me about something else. He told me that he raped a member of his family over a bar uh, when he used to run a pub. 
So I don't, I can't even count the amount of victims that I had. And and one particular story that this person from his past told me about was it? Oh, it's heartbreaking. So this um, this young boy, um, his mum knew Andrew, and whenever he was naughty, she'd send him to Andrew's house, and he'd come back silent. And I just think, oh, like, what did that little boy go through there to make him come back and and be silent? And what what would make her think that that was like a good? Oh, okay, I'll go. He'll sort him out. Like that's oh my gosh, that would have been. It's just mind boggling to think about. I know. So when your mum found out about the allegation, was she told in that moment that it was you that made the allegation, or you know what was that like? Did your mum and sister kind of believe you straight away, or when he was taken away that on that day? Yeah, so like I said, when the police officers came in, she was kind of like, what, another one? And then, like, was kind of concerned because this was the third one that she knew about. And and they didn't say who at the start, and then he went up the stairs. He was, like, obsessed with going upstairs, apparently, and causing this big issue that he wanted to go upstairs. So he said, all right, you can go upstairs, but we're coming with you. And so apparently he just grabbed the jumper. And while he was upstairs and, and then walking through the living room, um the police officer apparently got annoyed with Andrew and just said to my mum, oh, Ryan's made the allegation. And so my mum rose up and was screaming at him and stuff. And and then they took him away in the car. Um, but And then that night when I was staying at Sophie's house, um, my mum and sister came and sort of we spoke about it. And, yeah, they, they believed me straight away. That's It's like I've got goosebumps because as a mother, if she – she must have felt so guilty as well for allow for kind of putting you in that position, you know, like I'm making, you know, there was two allegations. She was aware that maybe something was going on um, and it was because of her that you were there, you know, that her relationship, but it's obviously not in that same breath her fault. Like I can't imagine for her how guilty she must feel. Yeah, and like these people know what they're doing. Like he knew, it was... He was like the perfect manipulator in a way. Like everyone around him thought he was the centre of the party, this amazing guy, and he did charity work. And, you know, it kind of overshadowed these little hiccups. And like I said, that's what they do. That's what they perfect and, and why they are so, you know, why they get away with it so much. Yeah, and why they're so prolific. It's um They don't just groom the victim. They usually groom everybody around them. Yeah. Um, and... It's terrifying, but it's something that we need to talk about as well. It's like a pedophile doesn't look like, you know, you can't spot one. Um, the same way that you can't spot um, like a, an attacker, you have this thing in your mind where you think it's a stranger in a dark alley that's wearing a trench coat kind of thing. And, you know, somebody that's sexually abusing children, somebody who rapes women or, you know, spikes people's drinks, they don't have a specific look to them. You can't, you know, pick them out of a lineup. But they can also be, from the outside looking in, very productive and, you know, lovely members of the community. They could be people who, like you just said, um, donate to charity or foster children or, um, you know, feed the homeless and stuff. And from the outside, they're trying to do that to build up this wonderful facade so that you second guess your thoughts even when you're confronted with 
an allegation, you go, but he's such a lovely man and he actually fosters young children or something. He couldn't possibly sexually abuse them. And you go, well, he's kind of creating an environment where he can. And it was a case that happened in Australia recently. And or um, I think the Sandusky case is really similar as well. And it's just a part that I think that we need to teach children more is that, and teach the community more, is that just because from the outside looking in, you look like a good and productive member of society does not mean that you aren't doing other things that are wrong. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. And I was talking to a friend um, the other day about prevention and stuff. And it's like, we teach like our, t- our children, like you said, oh, stranger danger and stuff. Um, and so why aren't we teaching them, you know, like body safety and, and like what it took for me was, um, you know, like a little, a little outsider's perspective, like Sophie was telling me, oh, what, what Andrew, how Andrew treats you is wrong. And, you know, that little bit of outside, um, like communication and stuff led to me probably, probably was the main reason why I spoke up like understanding that what he was doing was wrong from people outside of the situation is so important. So we need to make it our responsibility, no matter what, you know, no matter who you are to the child, make it your responsibility as well as a collective, as a community um, to communicate to that child, right? This is a healthy relationship. This is what should happen. And um, this is where you shouldn't be touched. And, you know, it, it take, I, I think, if we're talking about prevention, like it takes a community to to help a child understand that. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think I heard this um, one saying from um, Jim Clementi, who's a former FBI behavioral analyst, um, and he specialized in child cases. And he always said, if somebody is hanging around with your child more than you want to hang around with your child, because adults n- naturally can't be around children all day, every day. Like it becomes exhausting and annoying. You want to have adult interactions. Yeah. But if somebody's hanging around with your child more than you want to, that's a red flag. And that was a really big eye opener for me because like you said before, initially everyone's like, oh my God, what an incredible relationship um, that that this man has got with this young boy. Like it's wonderful. But I think for a lot of people now, the more and more we educate them, they can also start to see these red flags and go, why is this young child so attached to this man that he barely knows? And why is he hanging around with Ryan so often? And, and you know, you know, those are the things that we can do better as well is to educate people on red flags that they can notice. And I don't know the laws in the UK. Um, I'll look it up. But basically in Australia, anybody over the age of 18 is a mandated reporter. So that means that they have to even if they see something like that as a red flag, they have to notify somebody about it. Um, In America, people who are mandated reporters are like teachers and doctors and people in those types of professions. Um, But I think it's important that as a community, um, we also know that it is up to us as adults to call it out and to raise, like, you know, if nothing's going on and social services get involved, that's okay. Um, And that's the worst thing that can happen. But often people will say things like, oh, it's not my job to get involved. You know, what if, what if it's not true? And, you know, but what if it is? So (laughs) it's really important. That's that's One of the things about me now is like, there was once this scenario like near where I live and I saw this man 
and he was like ragging his children around and like I just didn't like the whole attitude and so we can do like a an anonymous report thing to Childline and so I did that straight away I gave the address and and that's what it takes just being aware no matter what connection you are to this child being aware of it and just making sure that it's looked into absolutely so after you know that's all happened and his friends have taken all of his computers it's just so I can't imagine how annoying that that must feel um what was the process so he was arrested was he remanded in custody did or he go home at any point so he wasn't allowed back to the property but uh he I, I was told he was um staying in this hotel um in the town center and um and he was on he was kind of like on bail but under investigation and then he was just under investigation and um and yeah i was like told by his friends that he was like or like meeting up with prostitutes and stuff and acting like crazy and drinking loads and like still like that kind of trying to make me feel sorry for him kind of thing and um and then after that i didn't really hear much um i knew that he was living i knew where he was living um but yeah i didn't hear much from anyone and and then uh, i think it was my sister she found his facebook page and saw that he was on holiday in thailand oh no <laughs> which is like a country notorious for white wealthy men going over and abusing children um and he had all these little like teenage asian boys as friends on facebook so it's like, oh, are they no. watching him? Are they keeping an eye? No, they're not. And there's like a picture of him on his on the zip line, having the time of his life. And it's like, what the hell? And I'm sat here at this point when I found this out. I was sat on the sofa, the skinniest I've ever been in my life, gone. And like, I think it was like a couple of days after I went to A and E because I wasn't eating. Like that was the situations we were both in, and it was just it felt so unfair. Yeah, that must have been really annoying. And it's kind of shocking that an allegation like that can be made. And there's already two other allegations on record that yeah. the police have um, and that he's still allowed to leave the country um, and possibly never come back. You know, he could just stay over there. Yeah, that's so true. I, I didn't think he would come back. Um I didn't know the timeline, how long he was there, but it looked like quite a long time, like his posts were quite – far apart and his job was if he was still in the same job it was very flexible like he always worked from home and kind of had a little office at home and so it was like he could have been over there for months and no one cared like no one was keeping an eye on him and it concerns me what he did over there as well and you never know it's so hidden over there it's a lot like children are abused over there like at crazy numbers and are never given justice and so yeah it's, it's uh it's a whole industry um, in a lot of countries and it's terrifying Yeah, to think almost that he was allowed to leave in a situation where people knew that he was a danger to society. And was he, so he did come back. Was he ever um, properly charged? So they say in the UK you're charged um, like before you go to court or something. She said that he was charged um, what my victim support worker said and he was brought in for more questioning when they found stuff, like I said, on his work laptop. Um, I don't know what that was. They never told me. Apparently it wasn't me. So that's even more concerning. Uh, yeah. Like a few months passed and I didn't hear anything again. 
Um, and then like a year, like a year or so passed and, um, and I, I always, in this time I always searched up his name, trying to find stuff. And, and I found that he went bankrupt. So he must've lost his job. Um, and then I was in a mall at the time near where I live and I get a phone call from the police officer who's dealing with the case. And she says, I need to speak with you urgently. And and so I meet her that night, she comes around to my house and strangely in the car with her is Adam, the first person who interviewed me about it. Okay. So that was like this crazy feeling like, oh my God, like <laughs> he was the first person that I told fully about this and, and he's here again. So I kind of knew something crazy had happened. And mm. um, and then she came in, said, oh, sit down, I'm, I'm going to tell you something big. And, and she said, oh, um, Andrew your abuse the person who abused you has died jesus christ like i didn't even i didn't even know how to process that to be honest like it was um like a complete mix of emotions and and it felt like the end of a chapter because adam was there and that was the start of everything and they was both just there and 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 yeah it was it was crazy i was I when they left I broke down in tears and I was like why am I crying like I'm kind of happy but like I'll never I felt like I'd, I'd let the other victims down in a way I felt like I was the person who's finally going to get justice for everyone this guy's finally going to get away hopefully my case when he gets found guilty for that the other ones will open up you know that's the kind of thing I was thinking yeah and um and so yeah it felt like I'd let everyone down every survivor down and and, and it's also like he—you never got him to openly admit to what he did or in anything. So you didn't get that level of justice that you'd probably sought for so yeah. long. Um, how did well, he pass away? He's still under investigation. It's under suspicious circumstances, so it's either suicide or um, like murder or something like that. Wow, that's um, it's really annoying. I think yeah yeah I can't, I would feel that it was really annoying if he did take his own life because you know I mean not no anybody suiciding is is an awful circumstance for them to yeah. feel like there's no way out but for somebody in his position to have the final say almost and take you know his life and take his secrets with him um must be incredibly frustrating He's um, like still had the control. Like he was always focused about having the control the whole time, and like I wanted to take that away from him, you know. And and you know he still had that control. He, he chose, and I feel like that's why he's done it. I feel like it is a suicide, and you know, I feel like that's why he did it to yeah. keep that control of the situation. And you know, it hurt so many people. He he basically killed one boy, and you know, good good riddance, like. Like I said on my video, I hope he never rests in peace. I hope he's going through torture right now because he was never sorry for what he did. He would have done it again. He probably did do it again. And if he got away with this, which I think he knew that he wouldn't, it was the thing is, oh, I forgot to mention this, but he literally had a letter three days before confirming the court date. That's how close it was. So it, it, to me, this is how it's how it's gone. He's seen the letter and then he's thought, shit. And then, uh, yeah, and then killed himself. Yeah knowing that it's kind of all about to crumble down around him um, and he's not going to have control anymore, definitely. I mean, it does make sense and fit a narrative that makes sense, but um, 
and I it guess, was the first, first case that is ever done where the victim's speaking against him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it wouldn't be shocking, I think, you know, the more and more you reach out and the more and more this story um, is shared and spoken about in regards to him, um, that there would probably be many many more um, victims, sadly, um, especially yeah. if he's had access to children in a situation like at a church. That's it, yeah. It's, um, yeah, it feels very very odd still, like it's still quite recent, but, um, yeah. So you've gone through absolute hell um, to get to this point and, you know, I think speaking the way that you do is really wonderful and you're going to do so much just by sharing this for other survivors um, of sexual abuse and especially young young men um, who have gone through this type of abuse. Um, I think it's really wonderful what you've done and I just want to commend you for it. And what you're doing now actually um, is you started your own project out of um, out of all of this. Do you mind telling everybody about what you're doing now um, as a part of Edge of the Bed? Yeah, so the Edge of the Bed is a page and a podcast. It's um, it's like a community for survivors. It's not like just about my story. I want it to be a page where we speak about different topics of abuse, where we share loads of stories and, you know, we can come together and relate with each other and hopefully reach people out there who have never spoken out. And I kind of just want it to be such a safe place and comfy space and, you know, where we can all come together and speak. And I want to extend it as well. I want to do in-person support groups. And, and yeah, I just want to take it as, as far as we can and reach as many people as we can because, you know, I'm 19 and it's I feel like it's very rare that someone at my age speaks about this. And I want to encourage other survivors out there around this age, you know, 19, 20, mid-20s, to um, just speak up and, you know, the normal age for people, well, not the normal age, but the most common age is later on in life and and people deal with this secret for so long. I just want it to become this op- more open topic and less stigmatised, especially for young guys as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head there and it's really um, it's really important that we have this advocacy space and safe spaces for people to talk about um, what they've gone through. And, you know, recently in Australia there was a Royal Commission um, into institutional child sexual abuse. And what that found was that on average, it takes 35 years for somebody who's been a victim of child sexual abuse to come forward, 35 years. And I think it's really important, like you said, that we intervene early. Um, There are chances that you can get, you know, financial support um, as a victim of crime, especially in the state that I live in, in Victoria, even without a court case. There are support services. There are so many wonderful things that are established to help people go through this. At the end of the day, for everybody, having a court case and going through that prosecution might not be what they want. But what you're doing, I think, is an incredible way to do it. And I think because you are a young man yourself, it is a really safe place to listen to your story and hear the way that you speak and allow especially more men to come forwards themselves at a younger age about what they went through. Yeah, thank you. I mean, for me personally, like I'm I'm not the best speaker. I'm not the most motivational speaker, but I just want to be real. I just want to, you know, tell my whole truth and, and don't try to hide or, or, you know, just show that you don't have to be ashamed of what happened. And 
and it doesn't matter how you tell it, you, you just tell your truth and and do it, yeah. That's absolutely right. And the shame shouldn't be with the person who's been a victim of crime. The shame needs to lie with the person who's with the perpetrator. Yeah, that's so true. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Um, where can people um, find your page and podcast? Yeah, so it's um, at the edge of the bed on Instagram. That's where I'm most active. I do have a Facebook page, but I'm most active and I do loads of interactive stuff on Instagram. Uh, and the podcast is the same, the edge of the bed, and that's on Spotify. I think it's on all of them, I think. Um, you can also say to your Alexa, play the edge of the bed podcast, which I found really cool. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah, so try that out if you want. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And I'll link everything um, in the show notes for this episode as well. What I'll also do is link in some support services specifically for the UK um, as well. So anything, this this discussion might have brought up some stuff for, for a lot of different listeners. And I encourage you to call local crisis services. There are local crisis services um, in the UK and in Australia. I'll link them all in the show notes for this episode as well. But for now, this is Reclaim Me signing off. This content may have been distressing or triggering for some listeners. In Australia, for national crisis support, please contact Lifeline on 131114. For more resources, please see the show notes for this episode. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.